Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy. This is episode 19, the three Indochina Wars. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. Joining me this morning, my colleagues from the Naval War College, we have Dr. David R. Stone, uh, Russia expert, and his lovely wife, Kristen Mulridi Stone, uh, who is a, a China expert. Welcome. Good to be here. You might say it's a Stone family podcast today. <laughs> Um, so the three Indochina wars, this is a case that's structured um, kind of looking at it in, in a non-U.S. way, even though the U.S. is part of the second Indochina war, it's really structured from a very Vietnamese perspective and a very international international dimension of strategy type, um, type perspective. And, um, you know, g- given, given that, uh, given that it's an international, uh, international outlook, um, Right after World War II, the French come in to, to recolonize and very very quickly get get beaten by uh, by Ho Chi Minh and the and the Viet Minh. And uh, Dave, we'll start with you. Do you think did the French have any other better strategic options here than than doing the the recolonial thing after after World War II? Well, so part of that, I think, gets to the, the fundamental question of, of French policy objectives. And after World War II, it's clear that the French policy objective is reassertion of a role on the world stage. Um, And that doesn't mean surrendering Vietnam as step number one. Uh, And so the French are faced with this choice immediately. You know, 1945, Japan surrenders and the French have a choice. Do we go back into Vietnam or do we just not do that whatsoever? And the the French don't really hesitate there. They go back in. Um, And that's a a high level policy decision. And in retrospect, they, they could have made a different one. France seems to have done just fine for itself without Vietnam as a colony. Um, but that was a very clear and I think pretty widespread consensus among the French policy elite that this was something they needed to do. They were not ready to surrender Vietnam or any part of their empire, particularly after the humiliating defeat of 1940. Uh, and so all sorts of things follow from that. Now, could they have done a better job? You know, that, that's a real uphill struggle. I mean, there's a lot of things in Vietnam that make this a tough lift for the French to make it work. But the policy choice, uh, there, there wasn't a lot of room, I think, for the French in 1945. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'd like to add to that a little bit. I mean, the the discussions of what was going to happen with Vietnam and Indochina um, were going on in the Oval Office, right, well before the Japanese surrender. And FDR was adamantly opposed to the French going back into Vietnam. And he used quite colorful language in articulating that. And it was kind of a, a more colorful version of over my dead body, right? And so he was 100% opposed to that. Had he lived, would he have changed his mind? Probably, because what ended up happening was that number one, as Dave said, you know, this was a, a decision, but it was also like 
not only are we not ready to give up our empire and not only are we unwilling to take a lower role, but there was like a glory thing about this, right? I mean, this was, we are the French empire and we must, right? And so it wasn't necessarily an entirely rational decision to do it, right? There's the whole glory and prestige part of imperialism. And that seems to have played a very significant part here. But what ends up happening at the end of the war is that there's a very, you know, a surprisingly strong, maybe not surprisingly, but quite a strong communist movement in France. And the United States needs France to be a strong ally that's a democracy in Western Europe, given what Stalin's doing in Eastern Europe. And so Truman ends up making the decision to go along and furthermore turns a slightly blind eye toward the fact that some of the, a lot of the lend lease equipment, the French redeployed to Vietnam so that they could fight, start fighting this war. And so the United States was sort of like, okay, we're just not gonna pay a whole lot of attention to this. But by the end of the French and Indochina war, the United States was paying for something like 80% of it. Well, and just to, to, to jump on that point, um, one of the interesting things about this is that the, the, the Vietnam question mirrors the bigger issue in the Cold War of the transition from Franklin Roosevelt to Harry Truman. Because Franklin Roosevelt didn't want European empires, Harry Truman puts U.S. money behind maintaining European empires. Um, and is it because Truman's a different person than FDR, or is it because Truman is facing the reality of a Cold War in a way that FDR didn't? He died before it was clear the, way, the direction things were headed. Um, so it's one of these interesting questions about personality versus circumstances in, in U.S. foreign policy. An unanswerable question, but one that I think is worth at least thinking about. Mm. Yeah, that you know. It, so it's interesting. We we talk a lot about um, policy strategy match, and if your if your policy is is that you want to keep Indochina in your sphere of influence, then what are the strategies you could use to get there, right? And and one of them is, well, you just go in and, and redo that, you know, recolonize, and you you know, hey, we're your we're your imperial overlords, we're back. And, Another outside of the box thinking would have been something more akin to what the U.S. does with the Philippines, which, OK, yes, there's a path to independence, but, you know, trade status is going to remain with us and, and that type of thing. But I guess uh, I guess that was beyond the pale for the for the French in 1945. Well, so I think in 1945 it is. I think over time, I mean, it's easy to beat up on the French in this and say, ah, oh, man, the stupid French, look at their the debacle they got themselves into, noting that the U.S. didn't actually come out of this so well either. Um, sure. But the French do, I mean, they, they the, North, the northern part of Vietnam turns out to be a non-starter. They can't get that back. But South Vietnam's different. And the French do actually try through Bao Dai, who's got this kind of imperial legitimacy to him, they try to find clients they can work with. Now, it ends up not working, but they at least do try mm -hmm. other options beyond just simply, you know, bringing this into the French administrative state. Mm -hmm. um, so since this is a, a red team kind of kind of case in many ways, let's let's shift the conversation. So, uh, Kristen, you mentioned about the Communist Party in France and Ho Chi Minh is a member of this Communist Party in France at, at one point in time. Um, and the question has come up uh, a couple of times, you know, both in lecture and seminar about Ho Chi Minh. Is he a nationalist? Or is he a communist? Is it 51, 49%? You know, which, where does, where does he fall out? So Kristen, why don't we start this one with you? Yeah, so that's the classic question, right? With respect to Ho Chi Minh. And you can ask that of Mao Zedong too, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Mao wanted to free an independent, stand on its own China. 
Um, and so he was also a nationalist, right? In terms of percentages, I don't want to assign numbers to it, but I would say that the the ratio of nationalist to communist in Ho Chi Minh is higher than it is in Mao. It's non-zero. I mean, it, it matters a lot to both of them, but in the case of China, right, it was never fully colonized, right? The, the colonialism, the imperialism in China is called semi-imperialism because foreign powers controlled portions of cities in many parts of the country, but never colonized it, say, the way the British colonized India. That's a totally different story in Vietnam, right? It has lost its independence to the French <clears throat> starting in the 1860s after having been independent for a long time. Going back to the 10th century, it was under Chinese suzerainty essentially, but they've been independent and get that. That is part of their um, cultural memory, right? That they used to be under Chinese control and now they're independent. Oh, and now they're under French control. And nobody liked that, right? I, well, obviously there were the collaborators, but there was a real consciousness about that. And it's, I've liked to say in the past that the um, Vietnamese had a sort of nascent form of nationalism before the nationalism in the world that grew out of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars had, had come so much to the fore that already existed to a more significant degree among the Vietnamese than it did in a lot of other parts of the world. And so from Ho Chi Minh's perspective, he wants the French out, right? So the French had been there for a long time. When France falls in 1940, a month later, the Japanese go into the French colonial administration and say, we'd like you to cooperate with us, right? They don't colonize it. They don't take over. But the French don't have any option, right? Because the Brits and Americans refuse to help. And so they have no choice but to cooperate. They continue to run it until I think it's March 1945, the Japanese actually go in and take control. And so to say that the French go back into Vietnam, it's a little bit different than they're gone and they come back, right? They were still there. A lot of the colonial administrators in the spring of 45 get <clears throat> imprisoned, put under house arrest, this kind of thing. Some of them collaborated with it more, but they're, they're still there and they have not been gone or out of um, power for very long when this happens. And so from the French perspective, this is just how it should be we're still here we've you know it was the japanese fault <laughs> it was the fault of the japanese that we were out so but from ho chi minh's perspective he had been very clearly nationalist and anti-imperialist and wanted vietnamese independence going way back before the war and so that's the perspective he's fighting from and of course during the war Viet, uh, ho chi minh is in southwestern china and there are oss officers who come in and they're working with him and so the, the, there's a whole lot of levels of stuff here. And of course, when, when Ho Chi Minh declares Vietnam to be independent in late August, early September, 1945, they're reading passages from the U.S. Declaration of Independence. And some people say, see, he expected U.S. assistance and for them to be allies. There's a lot of evidence now that actually he knew that that wasn't going to be the case, but he was playing <laughs> to the crowd and playing to the international community. Dave, any thoughts on this one? Sure. So to, to recycle an old joke, you know, if you ask, was, was Ho Chi Minh a nationalist or a communist? I say, well, yes. Um, I mean, he is both. Um, I, I'm going to take a slightly more um, communist angle on this uh, in that one thing uh, to think about Ho Chi Minh, it's just amazing when you read his life story. He's the Forrest Gump of international communism. He's everywhere. Um, right. He's a founder of the French Communist Party. Um, he's doing this uh, sort of, he ends up in British prisons. I mean, he's wandering around the world. And he's in Moscow. 
he spends a whole lot of time in Stalin's Moscow. And the thing about Stalin's Moscow is that Stalin was really eager to kill foreign communists who he didn't trust completely. Now, Ho Chi Minh was pretty low level at this. I mean, it's not clear that Stalin ever knew who he was. Or, um, but Ho Chi Minh lives through life in Stalin's Moscow. And so his ideological credentials as a communist are, are pretty solid. What I would say, though, is that the, when you ask nationalist or communist, that only becomes an issue when you have to choose between them. And Ho Chi Minh is, for a long time, never in a position where he has to choose. Hmm. Um, so, you know, what does a good Leninist say in the 1920s and 30s about foreign empires? Break up foreign empires. So the communist message and the nationalist message are exactly the same. During World War II, you know, fight the fascists. That's easy. Uh, it's only after World War II when there really does seem to at times be some degree of potential conflict between being a nationalist and being a communist um, that you might be able to kind of see where he'd have to make a decision. Um, but certainly 1945, during up through the French war, um, the communism and the nationalism aligned perfectly. You know, so the communist idea would be get the imperialists out of Vietnam, the nationalist idea is get the French out of Vietnam. There, there's really not a conflict between the two. Um, it's only later that you might be able to see some degree of daylight, I think, between those two questions. And that's actually different in China than it is in Vietnam. And this is going to sound a little bit silly, but it's partly due to the fact that in China, you have the Communist Party and the Nationalist Party, right? And so there, there's, it's not that communism can't be nationalist, but um, Chiang Kai-shek repeatedly, clearly makes the argument that his ideology, which is called the Three Principles of the People, is a Chinese ideology. What the communists have, that's a foreign ideology. Mm. Therefore, they're not nationalists. They're tools of the of the Soviets, and it's foreign. Wow. They're trying to make China something other than Chinese. And that doesn't factor in in the same way in Vietnam at all. So I want to now kind of talk about a little bit of... Um... Um, splits in terms of the Communist Party or communist ideology because of the international influence. And I want to do it through the lens of what happens at Geneva. So Geneva, you know, we talk a lot about in the course war termination and then uh, winning the peace, right? And Gene the Geneva Accords is ostensibly an opportunity to do that. But immediately following the Geneva Accords, certain people renege on their, on their agreements at, uh, at what happens. How does one, what happens at Geneva from, from a lens of, of Russia and China, and then what happens after Geneva, do the Vietnamese feel in, disenfranchised and is that kind of start of a larger communist party like, um, you know, Ho doesn't really trust then Mao and, and uh, it's still Khrushchev at the time, right? At, uh, in 54, yeah. So uh, Dave, why don't we start this one with you? So it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think the so Stalin dies in 1953, uh, Geneva is 1954. 1954 is about the time when we can say that Khrushchev in the Soviet Union is pretty solidly in power. Um, and that begins to mark a shift in the way the Soviets look at things. Um, Stalin's priorities had always been that, that Europe's the central theater of the Cold War. Now, he's obviously gets that there's a global Cold War. He cares about what happens in the Korean War. He cares what happens in China. But his focus is pretty squarely on Europe. Um, by the time you get to Khrushchev and then the 1950s and especially in the 1960s, the Soviets are starting to shift their opinion more towards caring more about the developing world. They see this as kind of a new theater. Uh, and, and the U.S. administrations are doing the same thing. What I think is different is that the Chinese have never had that luxury. I mean, for Mao, um, 
and I'll, I will defer to Kristen on this one, but, but my sense is that for Mao, um, you know, Vietnam is next door. You could never be Chinese and think of Vietnam as some peripheral issue that doesn't matter to you. Whereas if you're sitting in Moscow, it really can. Um, and so the Soviets, I think, have other priorities and are only slowly starting to see the developing world as, as a way to exert leverage in the global Cold War. Um, and so the Chinese, I think, are in a bit of a different position. Now, I will say very quickly on the Viet from the Vietnamese point of view, um, there's never a danger that Russia will, the, the Soviet Union will absorb Vietnam or try to dominate it because it's just far away. China is a very different story and has always been in Vietnamese history, whether you're communist or not. So I think that also has a, a bit of an effect on the dynamic of how Vietnam thinks about uh, the, the big communist neighbors and allies. Okay. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And you know, what comes out of Geneva, you know, there's a whole lot of what can be interpreted as imperialism going on there too, right? In terms of determining Vietnam's fate. And so um, that, that that's problematic from the Vietnamese perspective, um, our fate being decided out to a degree outside. Um, Zhou Enlai, incidentally, from China, was a real presence uh, in Geneva and going around not in a Mao suit, but in a really fine Western suit with a fedora and a black fedora, <laughs> black overcoat. The pictures are amazing. And he was hanging out with Charlie Chaplin, incidentally, in Geneva while he was there. So Zhou Enlai is another conversation. He's a he's a really fascinating character. And he knew how to play the good Chinese communist with the humble mm -hmm. Mao suit and also knew how to play on the international stage. Of course, he'd been in France in the in the 19 teens as part of the work study um, stuff that went on there with lots of Chinese people in um, in France and establishing a communist youth league branch in France, right? It's really interesting stuff. But he's really involved with this. He's really involved in the negotiations and the discussions in Geneva. And as Dave said, Vietnam, you know, okay, we have a communist neighbor, but there is that, as I alluded to earlier, this long-standing distrust of China and its intentions. And of course, China, you know, doesn't want the United States later, right, to have such a big presence just across its border. So um, it, the other part of, you know, the decision on how Vietnam is going to be managed and administered, you're bringing in multiple foreign elements, right? And when you end up putting somebody in power who's spent a lot of time in the United States, like, it's just, it's a, it's a lot of um, problems. Mm. So what, what jumps out at me from what you said, Chris, it almost seems like, um, from a Vietnamese perspective, the the Chinese have are, are this looming big brother threat, you know, former former imperial overlord centuries before. And, you know, now just because we're all wearing the hat with the red star on it doesn't mean that all is forgiven. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah. And it goes back a millennium, not just a century. Right. It goes way back to the 10th century. So, um, yeah, there's a there's it's not necessarily a pronounced hostility, but certainly a caution. Mm. Right. There's. The memory is there of how it had been. China is obviously a much, much larger country. And if you look at it from the Vietnamese perspective, China is finally now fully reunified under Mao. It's one. There's none of this warlord, warlordism stuff that we discussed you know, a couple of weeks ago. And so it's just, I think it was more something to keep an eye on and be concerned about. So going along with this you know, nationalist communist kind of discussion that we're having, um, and Dave, in your lectures, you've talked a lot about, you know, left-wing communism and right-wing communism, which is always a, an interesting thing. But 
there is this debate going on still about communism at home, making it work versus projecting communism abroad. For the Russians and the Chinese, is, is Vietnam simply a, you know, an afterthought or is it something like, oh no, this is the new front for communism, you know, where we're trying to make communism work? What, what, what Dave, we'll start this one with you. Sure. So I, I think one of the, th- the ways to think about this is to remember Vietnam ends up becoming a very, very big deal in 1965 when U.S. ground troops are fighting. In 1955, it's not so clear that Vietnam's going to be sort of ground zero for the Cold War. Um, and so I think for both the Soviets and for the Chinese, um, it's not so much about Vietnam in particular, but it's about sort of revolution in general, like what's the world doing? And this is where I do think you see a kind of ideological split between Soviet approach and the Chinese approach. And if I can make a huge generalization in this period of time, generally speaking, the Soviets tend to be more of the right-wing communists, like generally speaking, slow roll, um, kind of work with the local political situation, um, whereas Maoism is much more explicitly radical. This becomes far more clear in the 1960s, but I think you can see signs of it in the 1950s, where the Chinese are the left-wing communists and are much more pushing for immediate revolution and radical revolution wherever possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, that's a bit of a character, but I think there's some reality behind that. And so the Soviets and the Chinese are starting to see these ideological differences. They're going to blow open um, over the course of the later 1950s and into the 1960s. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and you know, after um, Stalin dies, right, Mao is concerned and isn't thrilled with Khrushchev. And we also discussed this in the Rise of China um, case. But he, especially once Khrushchev gives his um, secret speech, and is peaceful coexistence and all that kind of emphasis, Mao's not having it. Mao thinks that, that the, the Soviets are really um, going in the wrong direction and violating the true meaning and spirit of what communism is supposed to be. And so, yeah, I, I agree with that left versus right um, communism take here. And, and Mao sees it as his job to keep the communist, the international communist movement on track and keep it revolutionary. Um, so again, last time that we spoke, I talked about not thinking of Stalin as the great pragmatist, but he had that. And so does Khrushchev. This is, Khrushchev's decision is very pragmatic in terms of what's going on in the world and what the stakes are. And Mao's not. I mean, Mao had some pragmatism in him too at times, but at this point and going into the 60s, especially, but late 50s, from the late 50s, you know, the whole Great Leap Forward, it was a hugely radical, violent time when Mao is dedicated to that, um, you know, permanent or continuous revolution in a way that Khrushchev is not. Down with the capitalist running dogs in the Goomin Dang, right? right? That, you know? <laughs> so does, well, there's an interesting question actually as a, as a aside, since, you, you know, Mao is busily trying to kill off uh, undesirables in his own country during this time. Is does that make do do Russia and China look upon Vietnam? We talk a lot about peripheral theaters in the course. And Clausewitz says, in order to open a peripheral theater, it should be exceptionally rewarding. You should have the resources to do it. You should have you know risk versus reward is, is is favorable. Is Vietnam a secondary or a peripheral theater? Uh, it, well, it is. But but do the do the 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 Chinese and the Russians look upon it differently given the, the proximity and the geopolitics, that type of thing. Kristen, go ahead. We'll start with you. Well, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Um, I mean, 
What I will say, the term periphery is relevant here, right? Because Vietnam is on China's periphery. But I don't think, certainly in the 50s, that Mao is paying a whole lot of attention to that. More right? concerned with domestic. domestic. Well, violence. domestic, but also more concerned with the United States. And the United States doesn't have a presence there yet, right? I mean, the Korean War has just ended when all this happens, right? And so he's much more concerned about that. You have American troops in South Korea, and not in Vietnam. And so um, it's not that he was unaware, but he became much more, as Dave said, he became much more concerned about it once the Americans were on the ground. Okay, Dave? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think um, from the Soviet and Chinese point of view, I mean, this is, Vietnam isn't a peripheral theater they choose. The U.S. chooses to make Vietnam a peripheral theater when it goes in in force in 1965. And again, there had been advisors and money and all these things. But the U.S. is the, the party that decides to make Vietnam a big deal in the Cold War, um, much like the Soviets later decide to make Afghanistan a big deal. Um, and in a sense, from the Soviet and the Chinese point of view, the Americans have gotten themselves into a peripheral theater with a lot of big problems for themselves. And so if you're the Soviets, the Chinese, why would you you know, like want to get in the way. I mean, why would you want to get in the way of an adversary who's doing something that looks to you kind of unwise? Now, certainly they're concerned. Um, China makes these promises about defending North Vietnam against U.S. invasion. Um, and both the Soviets and the Chinese are providing assistance to the Vietnamese, um, to the North Vietnamese. But again, it's it's an American choice of theater that the Soviets and the Chinese are able to take some advantage of it and have to react to. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's let's talk about Second Indochina and which as we know it is the vietnam war the american war but still from a red team perspective um the question has come up before about three-phase maoism uh versus uh daotron and the one way i heard it described was you know is daotron just kind of like the you know stop and shop version of detergent it's got the same ingredients but just a different brand name is that, you know or or is it really no it's more complex they really have a new take on this a new spin and dave let's start this one with you so I come to this having read um, for my sins a whole lot of Marxist military theory. And so I read Dautron and I'm like, I've, I'm not seeing a whole lot here that I haven't seen a lot of Marxist military theorists say many times over. Um, and so I, I think we, we read this piece in the intermediate course about Dautron and how it's unbeatable and all this. And I, I'm a little skeptical on that. Um, I, mean, I do think, you know, there's a particular Marxist way of fighting wars, a particular, especially Marxist way of fighting revolutionary wars and insurgencies. Uh, and I think it fits in quite nicely um, with that pattern. Um, and given that, I mean, this may be a separate discussion, but I want to plant this seed. Um, I am kind of a half-hearted defender of William Westmoreland in that I think he actually, he's read just enough Mao um, and Jop to be dangerous. Um, Westmoreland, I think, actually gets something about how Mao thinks about war and how the North Vietnamese think about war. Um, and he doesn't use it in quite the way he should, but he, he gets at something real in thinking about stages of insurgency and in particular about being keeping an eye out for when you want, may want to go to a Mao phase three full scale conventional uh, conventional war. So I'll plant that for later and when, when we get more into the, the U.S. war itself. Okay. Kristen, any thoughts? I don't really have a whole lot to add to that, right? What I can say is over this whole period of the, uh, especially the first and second Indochina Wars, there are a whole lot of terms like Daotrong and others that were going to be the saving approach for um, 
Vietnam, whether in the north, whether from the northern perspective or the southern perspective, like this is what's going to solve this problem for us. This is what it's going to be. And so I agree with Dave. There's not a lot of differences between what they're calling that and, uh, you know, a, a Marxist style of, of war and insurgency and all of that kind of stuff. But um, it, it gets a lot of attention, to mm -hmm. be sure. But it's it's not radically different. Okay. So to pull on that thread a little bit, Dave, about the, I think, I believe it was one of your lectures, might have been for the ILC, where you put up the slide and talked about how you can, given the geography of Vietnam, you can be running phase one back in the central highlands, you can be in phase two in, in the lowlands, and then you can be at, or, or I'm sorry, no, it was, it was you'd be at phase three in the highlands and, and phase two in the lowlands, and phase, you know, whatever in the, um, uh, the Mekong Delta or whatever it is. Um, is that the part that kind of is the curveball for Westmoreland, where he's always preparing for this phase three, and if he forgets, to, if he forgets about fighting phase one and phase two, which are going on simultaneously? Yeah. So I think one of the things that's interesting about when you when you read the literature on the Vietnam War, there's always every school, every um, part of history has phases, and the current phase we're in is learning a lot more about what's going on inside North Vietnam. We're learning a lot more about how South Vietnam actually had its act together in some ways and getting new respect for some of the things that South Vietnam was doing. And I think we're starting to see a wave that maybe says that Westmoreland isn't quite so bad at this as we picture. And again, I don't want to defend everything Westmoreland did. Um, and I think he was much more thinking about what he needed than what he should do with it. Mm. But here's what I would say. Westmoreland's essential idea was the U.S. is really good at mobility and conventional warfare. So it makes sense for the U.S. to go off into the back country and chase down North Vietnamese regular units. And the South Vietnamese know the population and they know the language. And so they should be doing population protection. And that's not a crazy idea. Now, again, you can get into the implementation of this. But this is actually, I think, of a, not a bad way of looking at it. Now, Westmoreland may have been a little premature in seeing the, the, the main danger as um, a North Vietnamese conventional phase three sort of offensive. But the nature of Vietnam War is that you have to be thinking about both phases. There are these North Vietnamese regulars running around and there are these insurgents and you have to deal with both. Uh, and I think Westmoreland was conscious of the problem, whether he got the right solution to it, that's, that's an entirely separate question. Mm. Okay, Kristen, any thoughts? Yeah, so part of the problem here is that the, the North Vietnamese and the United States are coming at this from two entirely different perspectives, which doesn't mean they don't recognize anything about the other side, but mm -hmm. Americans primarily see this as part of the spread of communism. And mm -hmm. the North Vietnamese primarily see this as a war of independence. Yes, communist, but they want the foreigners out. Sure. And they don't, one of the um, things that we, we talk about frequently in this context is the American leadership presidents, right, had to respond to popular opinion and the Vietnamese didn't, right? The North Vietnamese did not. And they could just keep throwing bodies at it and throwing bodies at it. The American military said for a long time, and some people continue to say, well, if the government had just given us the additional forces, the additional equipment, if they'd given us what we said we needed, we would have won the war. And you know that is one of the classic questions. Was this a winnable war for the United States? And people have differences of opinion on that. I am firmly on the no side, right? Firmly on the no, the United States could not have won this war because it wasn't um, in a position to keep throwing everything at it, whereas the North Vietnamese were. And they didn't, you know, they could just keep throwing bodies at it. So it's not, I hesitate 
to connect Iraq and Afghanistan to Vietnam too much <laughs> because when those wars started, we had finally gotten to the point in research into the Vietnam War that was really high quality research, no longer like the participant observers, right? Who had who were writing the books, the journalists and the, and the military people and all that. And then as soon as Iraq and Afghanistan happened, the comparisons to Vietnam began, I mean, immediately. And it started to come back into the scholarship. So I don't like to overly link the two, but I mean, the, the, the similarities truly are there. They can keep throwing people at it until the United States, you know, can't match it, right? Or the United States is too tired or popular opinion is like, get out of Vietnam, anti-war protests, all that kind of stuff, so. Yeah. And, and if I could just um, follow up on that for a little bit, I mean, one of the interesting things that is coming out is we learn much more about the Vietnam War and we learn in particular what's going on inside North Vietnam. Um, you start to see angles on the war that are a little bit different. Um, for example, we, the U.S. always personalized the wars about Ho Chi Minh. And it's very clear that Ho Chi Minh was not running things. It's Lei Zuan in North Vietnam who's running the war. And Kristen said, she's absolutely right. The North does not have to respond to voters who are upset about, you know, their sons and husbands being sent off to get shot in Vietnam. Um, but there is a split inside the elite of the North Vietnamese party, which isn't a voter thing, but this is the elites. Ho Chi Minh is a, is a little more conservative, willing to sort of take things slow. Lei Zuan is the one who's really pushing this forward. Um, and so whether the U.S. is aware of that, probably not. Whether the U.S. could have done something to use that, maybe. Um, but it is one of these questions. Is there a way in which the United States could affect the calculations of the North Vietnamese elite, because inside that elite, there are differences of opinion about how fast to press this. They all want to see Vietnam unified under a communist government, but how radical they're going to be in doing that, how much they're willing to spend right now, there's a range of views on that, that the U.S. isn't able to take advantage of. Might have been impossible, but it's at least worth thinking about whether that's a potential strategy for the U.S. The, yeah, um, my view of that is that that likely would have just protracted it, right? I mean, because the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese were determined, uh, regardless of pace, right, and the extent of radicalism. So, um, yeah, I, they might have, the United States might have been able to do something with that in the short term, I think, but I don't think it affects the outcome. The, the thing that jumps out at me about, um, you know, what all of you, what you've said is, you know, we talk a lot about value object, the Clausewitz and concept of, um, and how over time, the value of the object for the, for the North Vietnamese is always astronomically high. But for the United States, the value of the object might've started say here on the spectrum, but then it, it's, it's, it, you know, it starts to slide. And by 1968, it's like, get out. And after 1973, we've decided we're done. All right, let's, let's you know, and, and what was, the other striking thing to me as a military officer served in Afghanistan is it's like this history rhymes where we, we decide we're going, we're done, we're done. And then whatever happens to our call it client state ally partner, whatever you want to call it um, is then as soon, as soon as the United States leaves, they're done too. You know, but I, I think you made the point Dave about South Vietnam fighting on for another two years. Whereas the, government of Afghanistan fought for two weeks, right? That's the... Um, Only had to fight for two weeks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so this actually, um, I, mean, I, I laugh at the irony of this is because often, John, you know, when we do these podcasts and are great discussions, but people often end up agreeing. And so it's interesting that Chris and I are the ones that are actually going to disagree a little bit about this. So um, what's, what I think is really interesting, and so 
at the beginning, we were very much, here's the international environment. Here's the international players and how they're looking at Vietnam. And now we're looking at Vietnam itself. And you, you phrased it, and I think accurately, that the North, North Vietnam's value of the object is enormously high. Mm-hmm. U.S. value of the object is, eh, it's there. Um, but it's always going to mean more to the North Vietnamese. And so when you pitch it that way, it sounds like this is unwinnable. Um, but one of the other things that's coming out of the literature as we as people we learn more about the war is taking South Vietnam seriously. And the South Vietnamese actually have a voice in this um, and they have a value of the object. And again, you alluded to this. I, I, I like to make the point. South Vietnam holds on for two years against a very capable adversary after the U.S. leaves. Um, hundreds of thousands of South Vietnamese young men die for their country. Um, and that suggests there's some value of the object there. And so the counterfactual I would spin out is. Um, and again, I'm not saying this leads to a U.S. victory and peace and you know sort of sweetness and light and everything's great. Um, but does slowing down North Vietnam give South Vietnam time to get its act together? Um, and it's clear there are resources there that we hadn't fully understood. Um, one example, and this is going back well before U.S. involvement, but is Diem uh, as president of South Vietnam was assassinated in 1963. Diem has lots of problems. He has lots of issues with his own domestic legitimacy. But it's clear he's a thinker and he has ideas for how he can fix South Vietnam that don't work and are cut short when he's assassinated. Um, And so you can ask these questions. Are there ways in which South Vietnam can become a more effective state and able to stand up for itself more effectively against North Vietnam? Um, And and there's a lot, I I think, of work to be still to be done looking at that question. Mm. Well, and I completely agree with that. In fact, I was going to bring up GM before you did. Um, Sorry. No, 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 no. That's fine. It's just that I agree that Diem was the best of the leaders in South Vietnam, um, even though he was problematic. But one of the reasons why he was problematic from the US perspective is that he wasn't obedient enough. He didn't want to do what the United States wanted him to do because he was a thinker. He had his own ideas. He had his own approach to this. And after, you know, was was Jim the non-communist alternative to Ho Chi Minh in the South? Maybe, but you know, again, he gets assassinated, and the coup that winds up ending with his with his assassination is approved by the United States, right? Not the assassination part, but it's approved, and then, of course, ironically, a few weeks later, Kennedy himself is assassinated. But after that, the South really struggles to get a good leader to try to be that non-communist alternative to Ho Chi Minh, and it doesn't materialize. Now, as we continue to learn more, maybe we'll learn more things about some of those leaders, but I don't see it. I don't see the charismatic, um, unifying person who's got all the support um, the way the image of Ho Chi Minh did in Mm. the South. So again, I think we're talking about protraction here, not changing outcomes. So, yeah, I, I will we'll shift the conversation then back to the red team because, you know, talking about uh, losing Vietnam or Afghanistan always kind of uh, <laughs> it's difficult for me. But so f- as this is as this is going on, all is not well on the red team side of the fence. Right. In 69, um, uh, Zenbao or Demansky Island, depending upon which side of the of the of the line you're on, uh, turns into a shooting match. And so, yeah, how does how does the Sino-Soviet split affect now what we've talked about as a as a peripheral theater? So I think it affects it, right, it, because both the Chinese and the Soviets want to be the greater influence 
um, this like little detail here for at least a while due to the Sino-Soviet split, Beijing and Moscow were not supporting the exact same people in Vietnam. So like, I think what it was was that the Soviets were providing government to the, or sorry, support to the um, People's Army of Vietnam, whereas the um, Chinese are providing support to the NLF, right? Wow. The National Liberation Front. And mm -hmm. so I don't know, how, I don't remember how long that lasts, but there's enough of a split that they won't even support the same exact or mm -hmm. su provide support to the same people, right? Wow. Functionally, it's the same, but there's this enough of a division that that goes on for a period of time. And so then, you know, as we've already said, it's much more pressing of an issue for Mao and for, uh, and, well, for Ch the Chinese and for the Soviets once the United States is there. Um, and now it's much, it's got a whole lot more attention. It's got a whole lot more resources coming in from China and it's, um, it's a you know it's not the it's not that the same level of say during the Chinese well during World War II in China when the nationalists and communists are actually fighting each other at the same time that they're fighting you know Japanese forces, but the the competition between the two certainly produced some inefficiencies right in terms of trying to support the um, the communist effort in mm. Vietnam. That must have looked interesting. Like, what do they have? You know, the Klasnovs are earmarked. Oh, Viet Cong only, you know. Well, it's interesting. I mean, when you think about it, there, you could think about it in terms of weapon systems. Like, what are the weapon systems that are useful to an insurgent in the South? And what are the weapon systems that are useful if you want to protect Hanoi? Yeah, so those are, you can imagine a sort of distinction there. Um, so what strikes me about this, and this is one of the things that makes me really irritated with American policy in this era, um, and Henry Kissinger, by the way. So we have people in the department who are big fans of Henry Kissinger. I'm not one, and this is one of the reasons why. So by the time that the Soviets and the Chinese are actually shooting at each other in large, in, in large quantities um, in the, at the late 1960s, the U.S. might have been able to use that, except the U.S. had already decided it wanted out. Like Nixon's elected in 68. And he clearly wants to get out. And his thinking and Kissinger's thinking is, how do we get out of here? Not how do we stay and win? Now, mm -hmm. I'm not questioning that decision. I'm, I'm inclined to think that was actually the right call is to be thinking about how do we get out, not how do we stay in and win in 1968. But what's interesting about it is that um, US priorities have all of a sudden take this, take this huge switch. And in two illustrations, in 1968, Soviet Union invades Czechoslovakia. Um, and the Johnson administration, which is in office at this point, is like, how big a deal do we make out of it? The Soviet Union just invaded Czechoslovakia. And their answer is, and I've seen the paperwork, we're not going to make a big deal out of this because we want the Soviets to help us get out of Vietnam. Wow. And I think to myself, you got into Vietnam because you were afraid of communist expansionism. And now you're not going to object to the Soviets invading one of their satellite states because you were afraid it's going to mess up your chances of getting out of Vietnam. That's kind of messed up thing number one. Um, messed up thing number two is, when Nixon, when Nixon goes to China, part of that is kind of playing this balancing act between the PRC and the Soviets. But part of that, a big part of that, is hoping for Chinese good offices in getting the U.S. out of Vietnam. So you're cozying up the Chinese to get out of Vietnam when you got in Vietnam in the first place because you're afraid of communist Chinese expansionism. So this is a bit of a rant, um, but I, it, it's triggered by, I'm, I'm easily triggered. Um, <laughs> I've been triggered by the I. The, um, the Sino-Soviet split, like could the U.S. have used it? Um, maybe, except the U.S. had already made the decision. 
Um, and so the U.S. is then in a position of now that it's trying to get out of Vietnam, sort of abandoning the policy priorities that got it there in the first place. And I'd like to think maybe if you thought that through initially, then you wouldn't be in this weird situation at the end of the 1960s. Deep breath, <laughs> rant over with. Thank you for indulging. <laughs> well, Kristen. the other thing about Kissinger and Nixon and their trips to China, right? Because Kissinger made two. The first one was secret. Mm -hmm. Nixon was nothing if not about keeping things secret. And then the second one was open to make the actual planning for Nixon's trip. But the timeline of that is really fascinating because the United States had been keeping the PRC out of the United Nations since you know the uh -huh. end of the Chinese Civil War. And the timeline of their decision to make these trips to China is in very, very much wrapped up in getting ahead of that vote where they know that the United States knows it's no longer going to have the support to keep Taiwan in the United Nations as the sole Chinese representative. And so it, that whole thing is really complex, but the timeline is honestly fascinating. And you've got it in Nixon's and Kissinger's memoirs. And, you know, Kissinger decided to stay an extra couple of days so that he, you know, wouldn't be in the United States, when the vote happens in the UN, something like that. And so that is a really, really complicated um, aspect of it because there's so much that's going on that's wrapped up in this. But yeah, I mean, I, I, Dave's point is well taken, but there's, you know, there's this other aspect of those trips to China too. It's funny how the, what we would call the international dimension of strategy uh, impacts everything that, that's going on. But I want to shift the conversation back from the red team perspective again. So let's fast forward a bit. Um, we've talked about the Sino-Soviet split and the somewhat, I guess, disenfranchisement, if you will, about Vietnam in terms of its two senior communist partners, one of which it has a lot of history with because they share a border. Almost as soon as uh, the, the Vietnam is... Um, reconquered, if you will, by the uh, by the North Vietnamese things, they they then start to export communism abroad, Laos and Cambodia fall to communism. And because of this, these actions, now all of a sudden, China and Vietnam are find themselves at odds, which a few years later by 79 is going to result in a cross border invasion. So, so Kristen, why don't we start this one with you as our as our China expert? What's the um, what's going on in terms of in you know we like to paint the picture in the United States of communism as this, as this monolithic block, but starting with Yugoslavia, Sino-Soviet split, now on to the to the Vietnamese Chinese call. It's obviously not. There's obviously regional uh, concerns, domestic concerns, all type of other concerns where they, the communists all can't get along. Um, what, what, what precipitates this and then how, and you know, how does this kind of like, what does this mean for the larger world stage? Well, I, I think there's a whole lot going on here, right? So with the Sino-Soviet split before rapprochement with the United States, right? China is alone in the world, right? Alone. It had all it previously it had a lot of aid coming in from the Soviet mm -hmm. Union to help it build industry and to do a whole bunch of stuff. There was a certain security of these two mammoth in size communist countries, um, both being in that camp. And when the Sino-Soviet split happens, 
China's very, very isolated. And that's when it, the whole Bandung conference and trying to build up the third world and non-aligned states and all this kind of stuff. And so there's a lot, Dave's heard me say this before, but there's a whole lot of uh, the motivation on the Chinese communist side to have friends and partners so that it's not completely alone in the world. And so exporting, of, I mean, because, you know, in, in um, Cambodia, of course, that is an extreme Maoist ideology, right, with the Khmer Rouge. And so I just think they have competing interests, right? There's China's got its own interests. The Soviet Union has its own interests. Vietnam has its own interests. And then you end up with, you know, this cross-border invasion um, of the Chinese forces into Vietnam. And so it's, it's no early on, right, after the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, there is this notion of international communism and it's all going to be one and we're going to spread it around the world and all this. I think that's broken down by this point, right? There's too many, um, ironically, nationalist interests, right, in terms of what each country is looking to do and how each country needs to build up its own security um, and alliances and all of that kind of stuff. And so the international communist, I mean, the common term doesn't exist anymore by this point in time. And that was a driving force behind that international communist movement. And so I just think real politic trumped uh, the um, international communist movement and everybody trying to work in similar ways. Okay. Dave, but, yeah, if I could, I'll, I'll take it up kind of to the theoretical level uh, to get at the same question, I think, in, in a complementary way. Um, one is that before the 1949, before there's a PRC, um, the communist world is um, like the big one and all the rest. The, the Soviets are clearly the leadership of world communism. It, communism is a unipolar world um, with Moscow and then everybody else. And then after 1949, it quickly becomes a bipolar world or a multipolar world. Uh, and that is necessarily going to change the whole dynamic. Um, one of the other things that's going on, and this is a theorist that we do not read in the course, but many of the, the listeners may be aware of, um, is Kotia, who is this Indian, ancient Indian military theorist who wrote Artashastra. And he talks about sort of circles, like you have a state, um, and then your neighbors are your enemies, and the neighbors of your neighbors are your friends. And I think you're very much seeing that uh, in a very realpolitik kind of way. Um, the Chinese and the Soviets are rivals on ideological grounds, but also on territorial grounds. Um, but for Vietnam, China is the big threatening neighbor. Um, Russia is the enemy of an enemy. Um, for Cambodia, Vietnam is the big threatening enemy. Uh, and so China is the enemy of the enemy. And so there's this kind of natural geopolitical thing that pushes China to be friends with Cambodia and opposed to Vietnam. Um, and I think in, in weird ways, we sort of still see that in Southeast Asia in some, some kind of funny ways. Um, China is good buddies with, with Burma and with Pakistan. Uh, and I think there's a kind of geopolitical motivation to that. So why invade if you're China? Why invade Vietnam? I mean, doesn't that kind of, one, shatter the notion of um, anything you're trying to do on the communist front, but also is, is it because they're trying to suck up to the United States in terms of gaining a, a, an ally? What do, what do you, Dave, we'll start this one with you. So I had a, a, a back when I was teaching at Kansas State, I had a student who did um, some uh, dissertation on this. Um, and. I'll throw out, I'm not the China expert, but I'm going to make a pronouncement about China, um, and that'll be corrected um, if I'm mistaken on this. It seems to me like one of the, the, the PRC's way of war is kind of um, middle kingdom um, hegemon and suzerainty based, that China is the middle kingdom, 
and its neighbors need to recognize that China's the boss. You know, you, your little neighbors can do what they want, but they need to recognize who's boss. And so what does that mean in practice? Well, it means that if you act up in China's neighborhood, they'll smack you around, teach you a lesson and go home. Um, and so in a sense, they did that with the Soviets uh, at the end of the 60s, sort of teach them, smack them and teach them a lesson. Now, not sure the Soviets felt they'd been taught a lesson. They do that to India uh, in the Sino-Indian War. The Chinese smack the Indians around and then go home. And then in Vietnam, from the Chinese point of view, Vietnam is acting uppity. Uh, it's not recognizing its place. So the Chinese invade, teach them a lesson, and go home. Now, again, the Vietnamese, the Vietnamese would say that what happened was actually a little bit different. But I think from, from Beijing's point of view, there is a certain commonality um, to what happens there. Mm -hmm. Kristen? I do not disagree with that. Um, but I also think it was incredibly ill-conceived, right? Why would you do, I mean, I understand why you would do that, but it, obviously it didn't play out very well, right? And China was in a very significant period of transition at that time. And so um, it doesn't, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. But yeah, it, it, things were looking like they were going to spin or had the potential to spin completely out of control right in that part of southeast asia and, and that's not in china's best interests right so i guess there's two ways of looking at it is one you know we talk about or at least the the political scientists in the department talk about uh you know the the whole henry kissinger thing about not only do you have to have uh a um the ability to do something, but it, you have to have that credible threat. Your neighbors have to believe that you are willing to use force to achieve your your ends. But then they use force, and as you mentioned, Chris, it doesn't go like well, how they lose thousands of troops. The Vietnamese really kind of get a twist on them, you know, cross the T, as we would say in naval terms. Uh, and and China almost looks like, wow, you're kind of a paper tiger. Like, yeah, you got a lot of people under arms, but they kind of got it handed to them. Kristen, we'll start this one with you. Well, yeah, that's true, right? And so um, at this point, there China hadn't really been fighting wars, right? Yes, there'd been some skirmishes, right? And, and those were very significant and very um, frightening to the rest of the world, um, but short-lived. And so were they trying to show the world something and that failed? You know, I don't, I don't know. But um, I, what, what I find in a very present day sense, much more interesting is, of course, that war is the last time China had any combat operational experience, right? And in the context of Ukraine and all of that stuff, that's that's really striking. But um, yeah, I don't I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because in the time we have left, we're going to keep it a hard stop today. What does this tell us today about vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan in, in terms of what China has? Dave, we'll start with you, then we'll go to you, Chris. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting question. And the situations are so different. I have trouble coming up with a, a nice sort of clear line in that um, we're talking about an insurgency fought on land, uh, a civil war uh, within Vietnam. Um, Taiwan is, this is sort of, it's an island. It, it's just different. Um, and so I have trouble seeing a great parallel there. Um, and also, I would say, in a sense, the, the China that goes into Vietnam and the China that both the, the China that supports North Vietnam and then fights a war against Vietnam uh, is very much an ideological state. Um, it is the, the Marxism is real. 
And Xi Jinping is many things, but he doesn't strike me as someone who's particularly motivated by the tenets of Marxism. Now, I think there's some Marxism there, but it's much more about Chinese nationalism and Xi Jinping's own, own personal interests. So I have trouble seeing great parallels, which is a very bad S&P answer. I should be able to draw like thousands of parallels, but I, I'm, I'm not really thinking of anything. I'm sure Kristen will have much better. No, I, I don't have a lot of parallels there either. I mean, because in terms of an, an invasion of Taiwan, right, not only is it a complex amphibious operation, but um, Taiwan as an island is very hilly and mountainous and urbanized, right? And so you've got terrain issues, you've got amphibious assault, and you've got um, urban warfare, right? And so this is a massive problem that and some analysts are saying, like, the the amphibious part of it is the least of their concerns, given the urban warfare piece that would be going on. And so um, the the only piece, the only way that I see the Vietnam part, or you know, the third Indochina war is relevant, is that what the Chinese have seen in terms of Russian struggles in Ukraine is, oh, they're not performing very well. And we don't have, yes, we're running exercises and all of this, but we do not have any combat experience. And so the hope would be that it's giving the Chinese more pause than they might have had before. But yeah, I don't see a whole lot of parallels. I see the parallels between Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's potential invasion of Taiwan, but I don't see a whole lot of parallel with the with the third Indochina war. Awesome. And thank you for mentioning amphibious warfare, Kristen. <laughs> and, you know, so that is all we have time for today. Uh, Dave, Kristen, thank you very much for your time. We'll see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Always a pleasure.